0: Oh, good morning, guys. Hey, if you don't know uh, who this short guy is yelling at you so far this morning, my name is Jacob. I'm the Youth 912 pastor. I've been here for about two years um, leading some of these guys right here. Um, Welcome to Youth Takeover. As the boss is away on sabbatical, the youth will take over and play. So we're gonna have some controlled chaos a bit this morning. Have they not led you guys so strongly this morning already? It's pretty amazing. Uh, I'm so thankful that we've just got a leadership team that takes Sundays like this, um, our our lead pastor, our executive pastors, our elders, and say, this is important that you get to see a little bit of the the youth ministry and what they're doing, because guess what? It's not all pizza and games. I know that's crazy. Um, Obviously, as you saw in that video, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take Jesus very seriously. as as Northeast youth. And so we're really excited to be here. Um, I'd be remiss to go ahead and already challenging you this morning uh, as a church, because man, let me tell you, if you've been moved by this generation already, and if you do get that that feeling of just watching them, it's like amazing. It's kind of wild to me for a church like ours that we have so many spots open to serve within our nursery, our preschool, our elementary, our middle, and our high school. It's kind of wild if you think about it. So I'm gonna really challenge you guys this morning that, man, if you get moved, if you think, man, I want to invest in the next generation, you need to. Just take the challenge. We shouldn't have to be scrounging and begging people to serve and take care of our little ones and the next generations for them to follow Jesus. It takes all of us to serve them together, okay? There's my challenge number one. But my challenge number two is I get to kind of help explain this crazy story that we see and what you just saw, but also the corresponding chapter right after, because really, this this story is kind of crazy, especially if you've not read First Kings or know anything about Elijah. You probably just watch that and you're thinking to yourself, what in the world does this have to do with me? Right? Have you ever been reading some chapters like that in scripture and be like, why do I need to read this? If you don't know anything about Elijah, once again, he is a prophet and he's been used by God in some profound ways already, even before the battle of Mount Carmel. I mean, he's raised somebody from the dead. He's had ravens sent by God to take care of him in the desert during this three-year-long drought. It's pretty wild. You've got to read 1 Kings. But then he just sees God completely decimate these challengers of God. He sees the prophets of Baal begin to worship Yahweh. But then, like we saw at the end of the video, we see him receive a message from Jezebel. And we're going to pick back up after that message from 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 3. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn there and pick back up with me. It says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Okay, I don't know if you're like me, but it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. pump the brakes a little bit here. We just went from seeing God Ignite fire to this trench that was covered in water. He's seen ravens take care of him in the desert to now we're suicidal. This is literally four verses away from him praying to end a three-year-long drought and God does it. He's being used in this way. What is up with this? To which the late theologian Timothy Keller, he would say, welcome to human life. Welcome to the human condition, right? I mean, let's be honest, if you um, are some of the parents of these teenagers, you understand this very well. This, dip, this disposition and their mood changes pretty fast on certain days, right? One day they love you, another day they hate you, right? But come on, adults, let's give them some slack because let's be honest, we're just much older teenagers, right? Right? We see God go from moving in these spectacular ways, we're praising him, puffing out our chest a little bit because of how great our God is, which is all good and what we should be doing, but how quick our disposition and mood changes whenever suffering or something doesn't go the way we think it should. You go from coming forward on a Sunday morning and hearing God speak to the next day, you unfortunately find out that someone close to you has cancer or you're gonna be laid off from your job or whatever amount of suffering you may be going through, the human life and its vast array of emotional ping pong is exhausting and incredibly jarring at times. But I think today the Bible is trying to show us that in stories like this, And even others like it, like Moses, who was suicidal in Numbers 11. Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, asked God to take him out too. And this is coming off the heels of wild success in their mission, in their ministry, God doing doing things through them powerfully. I think we see at times the strongest believers of God, people that are effective in their service, and really actually because of their service to God, can get into total despair. Total depression. And this is important for us to see because this is the reality of being a human being and a follower of God too. And the Bible does not hold back on that reality. Some days, some moments, you're gonna feel so connected to God. You're gonna feel like you're hearing him speak with an audible voice, but other times it's gonna feel like he's not there and you can enter into despair like Elijah has found himself in. I think it's important to see that Elijah's learning a lesson today in how the world actually works. Why did he end up in this place after all that he's experienced, especially this battle on Mount Carmel or Caramel? Why do we end up in places like this with our own relationship with God? Like I said, the late theologian Timothy Keller, he would say it comes down to a messed up perspective on the world. Really, we could call it pride. Elijah made the mistake in putting way too much stock in that moment on Mount Carmel. He thought, well, the prophets of Baal started worshiping God. I mean, I go on to kill them. That's a whole other story I'll explain at some point. But why isn't Ahab and Jezebel converting now? Why isn't the whole nation of Israel back to God's promised land? Why is this not working out how I thought it should? Don't we ask that question all the time? I don't know about you, but I do this all the time. Like, I'm about to take about 118 of these high schoolers down to Daytona Beach, Florida, in like a 12 to 13 hour long bus ride, where we're going to partner with some of the best speakers, the best worship leaders that you can imagine. And man, there's these moments where I see them, they're lifting their hands, they're worshiping, they're actually taking notes on their messages, not my own. But then they have these big moments of, like, yes, I want to repent, I want to follow God. And then we get back, and they just go back to doing what they were doing. Or, They don't even respond at all sometimes. And sometimes I can get in my head and think, are you kidding me? Did you all not just see what I just heard? Did you not just hear the worship songs that I just listened to? How How are they not responding? Here's the thing in my confession to you, that's pride in me. Elijah had pride in the event and what happened on Mount Carmel that it would just turn the hearts of Ahab and Jezebel so quickly, but... That pride led him to a not good enough view and understanding of just how sin works, how deep it runs in people, how deep it's in our world. If he thought that that little showing on Mount Carmel would just turn the hearts of of Ahab and Jezebel like that, or even at all, he's got it messed up. Our pride can be so great and put into programs and people and ministry avenues that are all great and they better be pointing to God. But if we have more faith in the program rather than God himself, trusting in his character, trusting in his timing, we're going to fall into despair in this life like Elijah. Every single time God doesn't do something we think he should in our timing and our way. I I give them this definition of sin all the time. Sin is whenever you choose to go your way. own way instead of God's way and if we don't get that right we're going to be in despair for the majority of our life because it's deep sin is so shocking it's the true power behind all the problems and evil of the world but we can't let our pride and how we think God will move and speak lead us to this blind optimism that we go about in our life and how we think God operates Pride can lead us to a blind optimism, but pride can also lead us in staying in that despair. And that despair, is going to lead to loneliness. And the loneliness allows the enemy to sneak right on in and feed you questions about God, about the world, and have you buy into lies that you've never heard God speak. Elijah learned the hard way on this day that pride, it led to that false optimism on Mount Carmel, but his pride is keeping him there in his pessimism. The solution for this, though, is that if we can get a proper understanding of sin and God's grace, we're going to see how God actually speaks to us every single day. But if we don't, we are going to be whipped lashed back and forth between blind optimism and utter despair. Elijah learned this day, actually, how to see and hear finally the world through the gospel. And so how do we do that? How do we see our world and where we're at right now in the now and not yet world that we find ourselves in through the lens of the gospel? Well, I think that there's three distractions in our way to hearing God's voice every single day in our lives, to see the world through the gospel. So we're gonna continue reading 1 Kings 19 and see what Elijah saw. If you'll pick back up with me in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 5. It says, then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came to him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where God has revealed himself in powerful ways to the prophet Moses. This is there he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What a question to receive from the creator of the universe. You know, the angel, he shows up, takes care of Elijah, and notice how there's not this big call to repentance, there's not a big altar call moment, no scolding, no questioning of what's going on with him. What did the angel do? Cooked him a meal. You know, one, the King James Version says he woke up and there was cake and water next to him, which sounds so much better, but obviously that's where we have gotten angel food cake, Right? We have to suffer through Corbin's dad jokes, so you have to suffer through at least one of mine. You know, one of the biggest distractions to hearing God's voice is first physiological. We are bodies, okay? We're not two separate things. We're not just body and soul, and, but we are body, soul, and mind all connected. And Elijah, he's been going pretty hard as a prophet. And I think this exhaustion, his pride about he thought God was going to move and change and restore Israel to its rightful rule and reign, it led him to his total breakdown. He wasn't taking care of himself. And so the angel comes along and reminds him to eat good and take a good nap. And some of you in this room today, as we go into the holiday, you need to hear that, that the journey was going to be too much for Elijah. And this journey called life, it's going to be too much for you if you don't humble yourself enough to ask God for help and ask others around you for help. You need it. Welcome God's touch in your life and watch what happens. It could look like actually taking some time off. Some of you have full-time jobs and they actually give you this thing called paid time off, PTO, hopefully. Why don't you try eating better? Implementing some time to exercise. Actually getting eight hours of sleep instead of five. You desperately need to take better care of yourself because you're wearing yourself down in the name of hustle for more money, hustle in the name of trying to get your kids involved in every little thing because you want the best for them or you want the life that you didn't have for them. Okay, cool, but what it's doing is leading you to despair, leading you being too busy to make time to connect with God. And now you're wore down. So take a word from the Lord today. Eat good, maybe eat some cake. And take a nap. The next distraction we're going to encounter is theological. How you think and view God says a lot about you. One theologian says, "Your first thoughts when you think about God, reveal who you are." Picking back up in First Kings chapter 19, verse nine. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, he replies, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me, too. So go out and stand before me on the mountain, said the Lord. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't there either. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, there's so much here that I just don't have the time to get into this morning, but I want to show you something that was pretty mind-blowing to me in my study. God makes sure Elijah sees him in a unique way in this moment. And each of those things that hit the mountain, the earthquake, the wind, and the fire, and no, y'all, it's not earth, wind, and fire who just performed this week in Louisville. It's not them, okay? This is God who has shown up like this before in the history of the Israelites. Elijah would have been very, very familiar with this. Each of those things, earthquakes, wind, and fire, have all been seen in the past from God as marks of his judgment against Israel or against another nation. But then God shows himself in a unique way, the gentle whisper. The King James version puts it as a still small voice. But the Hebrew here being used, we, can, we don't really just don't have words to describe it because how it, the word that they use there is, is describing the sound of silence. So why do we have these examples? Why does God show himself in the forms of judgment first compared to the gentle whisper? Well, I think he's trying to show Elijah that Mount Carmel isn't the way to go. God used it, of course, but he's trying to show him that they can, that it's not the big and dramatic events of life that change hearts and souls. Obviously they can at times, but it's his word being heard and read daily that changes people for the long haul. You don't need miraculous and dramatic answers to prayer all the time, church. You need his word daily. Too often we look at God and we talk to him like, hey, if you do this, I'll believe in you. I'll know you're real. If you heal my grandma from cancer, if you get me this job, if you get me this career, if you give me this talent, if you give me this, if you get me the right spouse, if you give me the right amount of kids, this isn't how God works. Tim Keller, once again, he points out that the earthquake, wind, and the fire, those are all vicious forms of judgment that are happening right here on the mountain. They're markers of his judgment. So why didn't Elijah get taken out on that mountain? Well, remember, we're learning a lot about sin, but isn't this an act of grace from God Himself? And more than that, it's gonna be Jesus who's gonna be the one who gets shaken. It's gonna be him who has to take on the fire of God's wrath. It's gonna be him who inherits the wind. The reason for the still small voice, this act of grace that it was there for Elijah and is now here for us today is because of our savior, Jesus. Elijah thought judgment on these wicked people, fire raining down would lead to salvation for the whole nation, but it's really an act of God's grace and people turning towards it that leads to salvation. God still judges. We get that word from Jesus himself but that's God's work. Judgment comes down on Jesus so he can give us grace in the moment and now we can hear from him every single day if we choose to. We have to stop getting it twisted that God is only present in the big moments, that he's only here in the hype because let me tell you all something like I tell my students all the time after a big event is that the hype wears down. The hype doesn't sustain you very long when suffering is gonna come your way because guess what? Jesus promises it will. If you're only used to seeing God on a Sunday morning when Tyler gets out here with the pillows and they're singing all your favorite song, your faith ain't gonna last long. You're more in love probably with the songs that we sing than the person that we're singing to. The hype fades. Biblical hope lasts. Why? Because that still, small voice, the word that was spoken to Elijah has now become flesh through Jesus. Jesus. Having true hope and faith, it goes beyond the present circumstances and I understand that it doesn't fix it in the moment. But we have a hope and a faith in the finished work of a person who was on that cross and through his resurrection and his promises of making all things new and right one day. God does the Mount Carmel stuff for sure, but that's not the typical way he goes about it. It's the voice of the spirit. It's the quiet breath. God speaks to us in a whisper, a whisper like when you lock eyes with your spouse in an intimate moment and say, I love you. A moment like when you scoop up your child after they've fallen on the ground and you hug them tightly and say, I'm right here. A moment like when, you, when a friend just wraps you in their arms and just says, it's okay when life is falling apart. The thing about each of those moments, though, it requires you to be close. To hear a whisper, it requires intimacy. In order to hear the still small voice of God, we have to be close to Him. We have to draw near to him as the scriptures say and watch as he draws near to you because I promise you all, church, God's speaking to you. He's just speaking in the mundane, boring, folding laundry, everyday moments of lives 10 times more than the big moments of Sunday mornings and the places we expect him to be. We are just too distracted to hear it. He's speaking to you while you're getting ready in the morning, but you're too distracted by TikTok while you're doing your makeup. He's speaking to you in the car on your way to work while you're stuck on I-71 South, but you're too busy being too mad at the person in front of you or like me this whole week, memorizing Taylor Swift lyrics for her shows, okay? It's a confession for me today. He's speaking to you in the halls of your workplace as you head to your next meeting, but you're too busy checking that email to notice. God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit and this gentle voice, but you have to tune your ears and listen. What it comes down to, you have to make time in your day every day to read God's word and pray. Because these are the two ways, main ways, that he speaks to us today. We have to then make it a priority to surround ourselves with other Christ followers. So good job on today. Because guess what? The Holy Spirit lives in other believers as well. And God may be using someone close to you to speak to you, but you're just not listening to them. Make time. If you can't if you feel like you can't spend at least 30 minutes with the creator of the universe, the creator of you, every single day, that says more about you and your theology of God than it does the problems that you have with how he reveals himself to you. One of our students just challenges our, our high schoolers to spend 30 minutes a day with God. 10 minutes, here's how the, here's the breakdown. 10 minutes in reading scripture, 10 minutes in prayer, 10 minutes listening to a worship song. It's that simple. Do it daily. Watch what God will do. There's one more distraction, though, and it's psychological. It's right here. It's in our minds because we could be taking care of ourselves pretty good. We could actually be knowing the truths and hearing the truths that we see in here, but it's a whole other thing to get the right narrative about God against the other narratives you already have about him. Let's continue on in First Kings 19, picking back up in verse 14. Elijah replied again, "'I've zealously served the Lord God, "'but the people of Israel, they've broken the covenants, "'torn down your altars, killed all the prophets. "'I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too.' "'Then the Lord said to him, told him, "'Go back the way you came "'and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. "'When you arrive there, anoint Hezael to be king of Aram, "'then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, "'to be king of Israel, "'and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, "'from the town of Abel, to replace you as my prophet.' Anyone who escapes from Hezael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Now notice how twice Elijah gives that response. Once before God reveals himself in a new way, and now even a second time, he didn't have the right view of God right here yet. Elijah's got it twisted that he's the only one doing the Lord's work. Man don't we get like this for you, for you like Christians of a long time I've been reading my Bible every day. I'm praying every day. I'm reading the storybook Bible to my kid every night. I'm serving on the kids' ministry team. I'm actually giving more than 10% as a tithe to the church. I'm watching online while I'm on vacation right now. I'm in a small group. I'm not scared to lift my hands during worship and what others will think of me. I'm streaming King by Northeast Worship every day on Spotify and Apple Music, and you're not speaking to me, God? But how does God respond to Elijah go back the same way you came. He's basically telling him, get back to work, man. Go back to what you were doing. God looks at him, counsels him. Then says this random point where he says, go anoint Hezael to be king of Aram. And that may sound random and weird and uh, doesn't matter, but what is interesting about this is that Hezael is a pagan king. He could care less about God. God's basically telling Elijah, hey, I'm in charge here. I'm using pagans to do my work. I'm working it out. Trust in me. Don't buy into the enemy's lies. Actually, I've got 7,000 others who are worshiping me. Don't think too highly of yourself, Elijah. God looks at him and says, get back to where you are. In other words, go back to your purpose. Go back and understand why I chose you to be a prophet I think for us today, it's, you, some of you need to go back and remember why you made the decision to follow Jesus. Getting back to the very simple news of once you were dead in your sin but now you're alive in Christ Jesus. Go back and understand why you put your faith in him. Go back and see that in order to hear from God you actually have to have a relationship with him or he is just going to keep passing you by and it's going to look like judgment but it's him waiting for you to notice, waiting for you to hear, waiting for you to respond, waiting for you to obey because God's love language is obedience and it's sin whenever we choose to go our own way instead of his. I think a lot of us probably think that we have lost our minds when it comes to following God because of what we think and what we go through and what people will say what our friends at school will say about us but I think it's a little different. You haven't lost your mind I think you've lost your ears. My great-grandmother would say that to me all the time if I wasn't listening. Have you lost your ears, boy? And I think we've lost ours. We tune God out so much with what we've got going on in our lives and our hearts that we can become deaf in hearing Him speak. But if we can learn these lessons from Elijah, get a right perspective of the world, of the gospel, take care of yourself physically and emotionally, surrounding yourself with other Christ like believers, encouraging you along the way, you're going to learn how to hear the still small voice. It may not be every day, it may not be clear every day. It's not for me, but we serve a God who speaks. I do have a fear this morning, though. That we're trying our best to raise up this generation over here to not get distracted by the things I listed earlier. That they're actually confident that God is the one who's created them and made them in his image, and his alone. That they don't get caught up in the hustle of school and sports. That they don't have to buy into the enemy's mind tricks and that there's help available to them for their mental health. We're trying our hardest to teach them good theology. Orthodox theology about who Jesus is, how to read and pray and hear from him. But my fear is we're trying to raise up a generation, but the generation before them, including my own, is not putting in the work to show them how this works. Because what if, church, we're raising a generation of participants, of hearers and obeyers, like you're seeing an example of this morning, but they're being raised by a generation of spectators. We can do all we can while we have them here on Sundays, on Wednesday nights, in small groups, but I promise you it's going to go better for this generation if their parents, if their grandparents, the people before them actually show them what it looks like in their homes to hear God, to follow him, to read his word, to pray and to live it out. And so my challenge to each of you all this morning with kids, and I'm preaching to myself this morning is to take your role seriously. They're watching you. It may feel like, especially if you've got teenagers, that they could care less about you right now, but I've heard from so many students how they wish their parents would pray over them, how they wish their parents would read the Bible with them, how they wish they would show them how to follow Jesus in the boring everyday moments of life. Why would we expect this generation to lead revival like we see at Asbury, like like we see Elijah doing here, and to do great things for the Lord, but... We're not taking our role responsibly day in and day out. We have to find our ears. We have to show them what it looks like to hear the voice of God, to obey it, because God's gonna do incredible things when we respond. And I wanna show you an example of what this looks like. Because if you're struggling on what it means to hear God's voice, if you're struggling with what it means to respond, to be obedient to God's call, I want you to listen to this story from one of our very own students and be challenged today by this generation hearing the voice of God. Have a look.
1: Listening to this, still small voice, you know, listening to God, it has opened up a lot of amazing stories for me. I have so many just like things that cannot be coincidences that have happened to me this year. And I, there's no other way for me to explain them. The big turning point for me in my faith was around Winter Retreat of this year. And in early March, we went to Winter Retreat and it was my first time ever going and I was really scared, honestly. And um, the first day, in the beginning of the day, like right then, they just hit us hard with a vulnerability thing called the line session. And basically, if something applied to you, prompt, you know, it, it could be anything, you would go into the middle and everybody would pray over you and it was very vulnerable because it put you in a spot where everybody could see that this is what you were struggling with, but that was the point because they wanted to connect us in our struggles and our faith. I had a conflict with somebody that was in the room and one of the prompts was go to the middle if you have a conflict with somebody that is in the room. And. This was a person I had not spoken to in a very, very long time, and under no other circumstance would we talk again. And I felt really convicted. I spent a lot of my day thinking about it. I spent my day talking to other people about it, and like, I wouldn't let myself get still enough to actually understand that that was what I wanted to do, that I wanted to face it. And at some point during our worship session at night, I was just kind of like, wait, (laughs) I was like, stop, this is what I'm being called to do. I'm being called to resolve this. And so I kind of ran over to Jacob and I was just like, Jacob, I have a conviction. And he was like, what? I have a conviction. And um, I told him that I wanted to confront this conflict, that I wanted to talk to this friend. And he was like, no way, that's what the sermon's about. And I was like, what? You know, I had never actually listened to a sermon on conflict. And the whole sermon was just God preparing me. It felt so right. And to run from that would have felt so wrong. And I, got to talk to that friend afterwards. I talked to Jacob about it and Jacob prayed over me and then I talked to that friend and that friend was thinking the same thing as me. Like, I wanna talk to you, but I'm too scared to do it. And um, and afterwards, we we talked for a very long time and were able to reconcile. And I didn't realize that um, reconciling with this person would actually impact so many people. There was a divide in our community because of it. And so many people were like, whoa, I was praying for that, you know? And I was like, how were you praying for that? It's been so long and it inspired everybody. And I didn't mean to do that. And I didn't mean to let God do that through me. And he did. So I think what I've learned is that there's just a still, small voice in everybody. And if you take enough time out of your day for prayer or, or just stillness with God, you'll understand what He wants for you.